Jesus, uh, would you be with us tonight? Please speak to us through your word, the Bible. Uh, build us up, Lord. Use my insufficiency for your great and sufficient means. Um, work your sovereign power here tonight and transform us through the power that you have placed in this word of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Matt, I'm going to steal that thingamajig from you. That's the official name of it. It's a thingamajig. Yes, I'm recording. Am I recording? I am recording. Great. We have had too many sermons that have somehow avoided recording recently. That's why Matt asks. Uh, this evening we're continuing in our ser- series on the letter of First Peter. If you haven't been here for the whole thing, some parts of it are up on the uh, podcast, as was implied just now. Uh, in the first verses of this book, we'll just do a really quick rehash. Uh, we found that the book is addressed to the elect exiles, to chosen strangers. Uh, and this really set the, the purpose and trajectory of the letter Uh, The phrase chosen strangers outlines for us the identity of a Christian. Uh, The Christians that you're writing to, they are chosen with regard to God. Uh, They are his beloved children. And also with regard to the world, they are, because they are chosen by God, they are strangers. They are exiles in this world. That's how Peter chooses to address us as Christians in our lives here. Uh, And as we saw in the following verses, that Uh, life of being chosen by God and a stranger in the world produces trials and sufferings, according to Peter. Indeed, Peter's words on suffering throughout this whole letter lead us to suspect that uh, the numerous churches that this letter was originally written to, basically modern-day Turkey is what we're talking about here, uh, were just beginning to suffer for their faith in a way that they hadn't experienced before. So probably the biggest thing for us to remember is that the Apostle Peter's purpose for writing this letter is to encourage these Christians and to encourage us, uh, by addition to them, who are beginning to suffer for Christ, to live out our identity. That in Jesus we are God's specially chosen people. And therefore to be content to live different lives to the world around us. Hence the title of the series. And in verses 3 to 12, uh, Peter fleshed out that the core of what it means to be chosen by God is that you are chosen to have uh, a hope. Uh, you You are born again by the resurrection of Jesus, and so you have hope. You have hope fueled joy, in fact, in Jesus. This is a hope that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. Then in 13 to 21, which Matt helpfully brought to us last week, we saw Peter begin to bring the solid application of what it looks like to be a person who lives with hope in a world that isn't home. And he gave us those those three commands. I don't know if you remember what they were. They were, uh, does anyone remember what they were? Challenging question for you. Convenient. That one is on the podcast. Uh, (laughs) Be holy. Yeah, it's not the first one, but sure. (laughs) Yes. Set your hope fully. On Jesus, be holy for I am holy because you are children of God and fear the Lord because he is both the judge of all and the one who has brought you out of judgment by the precious blood of Jesus. Uh, And so we are going to pick up today in verse 22 where we left off last week of chapter 1, which Robin read for us before, really just flows on from these commands uh, to to hope, be holy, and to fear God. But first, uh, where did I put that thing? Fill down. Who knows what this is? I'm, I'm taking a risk here because someone might know what this is. We are in country after all. Uh, your fingers. Now, those aren't my fingers, actually. I found this on the internet. Okay, 
Um, we won't be posting on the line. I don't have rights to this. The uh, <laughs> Queensland uh, weed eradication project of some variety might get onto us. Um, no one? No, not dragon fruit. Good try, though, Owen. Uh, that is the flower of buffalo grass uh, in, its, in its brief and temporary moment. Apparently, according to the, the Queensland government, it is anyway. Um, uh, in, in our passage today, Peter quotes the Old Testament, uh, a passage which talks about everything in this world. He, he, he speaks about... What are those words? Let me get them for you. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. And uh, how funny that a bunch of people who've all lived in the country have all lived around grass for an exceedingly long time. You've all seen grass before, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. The flower of the grass, right? Look at that. That's a person's flower. <coughs> and that's the flower of the grass. Withers and falls. And Peter says that everything in this world, all of the glory of the flesh of this world, is like that flower of grass compared to one thing that lasts forever. And he is going to show us how our lives can be filled up with an eternal significance that is unlike everything else in this world. So, we'll get to that. Uh, please uh, open up your Bibles if you haven't already. Hopefully you did when Robin asked you to. Um, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 1 from verse 22, and I'm going to start by reading again from there. Peter writes in the first section of it, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So in verse 22 there, uh, Peter calls us to action uh, on the basis of truth. Uh, and then in verses 23 through 25, he really just bores out, brings out the rich meaning of what he said in verse 22. He expands on it. Uh, what's really clear here is what he's commanding us to do. That bit's fairly obvious. He says, love one another, right? That's, that's, that's evident in verse 22. I hope it is. Uh, but, but what that takes a little bit more digging uh, and is equally, if not more important than the command to love one another, is the basis for that command. Uh, Peter writes, uh, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Peter gives us this basis for why we would love one another. You know, um, I, I, I was looking up stuff about this this week, and uh, I don't know quite how I got into this, but uh, has anyone here heard of the Black Eyed Peas? Yes. Yeah, I thought they were dead, but they're still around. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> but they, they released a song very recently called Be Nice. Uh, and, and the gist of it is, be nice, because if you're nice to people, then they'll be nice back to you. And that is the, the logic of the world, isn't it? Doesn't that just... I, I love that. That captures the whole world's logic as to w what the reasoning is to be good to each other. Because that's a way to have a good life, right? And, 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 and isn't that so limited and finite? Isn't that so empty? You know, what about in the instance where me being nice to James, for instance, isn't going to result in him being nice back to me? But that's not what Peter does here. Peter isn't Will I Am. Thank heavens, right? Uh, <laughs> Will I Am is in the Black Eyed Peas. I know too much about them. Anyway, um, I'm a real man. Sure, I am. Um, Peter gives us 
really solid reason, not just to be nice, but to love each other with a sincere brotherly love, the love of a family in Christ. So what does that mean, to have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love? We're going we're gonna to take that into some chunks. Uh, having purified your souls parallels there what happens in verse uh, 23 when Paul's, uh, Paul Peter says that we have been born again. Uh, it's talking about when you were saved. Uh, that's the purification he's talking about. And Peter says that our salvation comes from obedience to the truth. That is, we are, were saved from our sin, we were purified when our lives came uh, into line with a particular truth. And we get what that truth is really clearly in the rest of the passage. In fact, he spends the rest of chapter 1, the last few verses of chapter 1, focusing on what that truth is and the wonder of it. Peter says that our salvation came from obedience to the truth. Uh, the parallel with verse 23 comes out again here because there he says that we have been born again by the imperishable seed, which is the living and abiding word of God. And the quote in verse 24 and 25 reinforces this abiding, remaining word over and against the things of this world. And we'll come back to that quote again later on. But then in verse 25, he actually says that this word is the good news that was preached to you. That is to say, it's the gospel by which these Christians were saved. That is the basis for their salvation and that is what leads them to love one another. And we get, we get what the obedience is to the truth uh, from verse 21, actually, just what Matt preached to us last week, because he has actually just explained the gospel. Uh, you'll notice that there. He's reminded us of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the words preceding our passage tonight. And then he closes that verse with the purpose, the result of this news in their lives, which is that your faith and hope are in God. So, are you with me or am I making no sense? I think we're about 50% here and there, you know. Uh, I know it's Sunday evening, stick with me, it's warm in here. Is that thing on? Anyway. What we've got so far is that having purified your souls roughly equates to having been saved. Right? It's an oversimplification, but that's what it is. Uh, obedience to the truth means to have put your faith and hope in God through the truth of the gospel. So we could paraphrase and say, having been saved when you obeyed the gospel, trusting in God and hoping in him. And that's the, that's the start of that sentence. And then he gives this one clear purpose of salvation. And it's interesting, this, is, this isn't just a, this should happen moment. This is a, this is what will happen. This is what your salvation is for. Not the only thing that it's for, but this is what it's for. It's for a sincere brotherly love, Peter writes. What he's saying there is that one great purpose for which you've been saved, set apart, chosen by God, is to return all of your relationships to the loving care that God intended humans to have toward each other, especially your relationship with those who have also been saved. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the ultimate purpose of our salvation. In fact, thank heavens it's not, right? You know. I love you guys, and it's good to get along with you all and to love each other. But there is more to our salvation than just our love for each other. Uh, I think we get the, the ultimate purpose in verse 21, that our faith and hope are in God, and that we will one day be with him. That's, that's, that's all of chapter 1 so far, in fact. He's at the centre now. But just like, as we've seen again and again, our chosenness 
by God, our new relationship with him uh, makes us foreigners to the world around us. Here we see that it also makes us loving brothers and sisters of those who share in the same salvation as us. I mean, think about it. It makes sense when you think about this in the context of the whole Bible, right? Right back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, right? You're familiar with the instance with the fruit? We don't like talking about it. It's a sad moment in our history. It didn't do well for humans. But uh, the first thing that broke then was our relationship with God, right? But then immediately, immediately after that, the result of that is that the man and the woman... Adam and Eve, the only people in the whole world at that point, start blaming each other. They start acting unlovingly towards each other. Their relationship breaks immediately as a result of their relationship with God breaking and the entrance of sin into the world. And then God tells Eve, from now on, your desire will be against your husband. and He will rule over you. And from then on, there is opposition and deceit. And resentment, there is reviling, there is envy, there is slander between us as people. From then on, our relationships are shattered, broken. And now Peter's saying, that's not you anymore, Christians. When you obeyed the truth, when you put your faith and your hope in God, obeying the call of the gospel to believe and be saved, that changed you so that you can now love one another again, as you were created to do. This is, this is a critical way in which the church is to be different to the world around us. Now, we don't do that perfectly yet, obviously. Uh, if you've spoken to me for more than five minutes, you know that I don't love perfectly. Uh, we still struggle with sin in our lives, but still, Peter's saying, now you're able to love in a way that you weren't before, because your relationship with God has been restored through the gospel. So to put the verse back together, what Peter's saying essentially is, having been saved when you obeyed the gospel, the result of that is that you'll love one another. So, love one another. I love that he, he repeats himself there. He's like, this is what it's for, so do that, right? <laughs> it was pretty clear already, Peter, but, but, but it's helpful anyway. There is this close cause and effect relationship that he's giving us between being saved by the gospel and loving others who have been saved by the gospel. To be one of God's chosen people means that you are a part of a community and that community is to be a place where loving human relationships are being restored in a way that they can't be restored elsewhere in society. Really being saved by the gospel results in really loving one another. And what's happening there is that our ordinary everyday lives are being filled up with an eternal significance. Peter has reminded us all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. In and of itself, of themselves, our lives are not actually that significant. My apologies if I've just shattered a bubble for you. Um, we are a fleeting thing. The things that we do and that we go after in this world are, generally speaking, fleeting things. Remember the flower of the grass. Who can? Who, you're probably on camera. I'm just curious. Who can remember what colour the flower was? Don't yell it out. Just put your hand up if you can. Don't, don't, don't. Robin Redding. Disobedience. Um, sorry. Uh, okay, let's move on. But like, 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 I don't know about you. Like, there would be every chance if I hadn't looked at that several times this week that I, I might have already forgotten what it looks like. Um, not everyone put their hand up just now. It's. <laughs> 
It is that fleeting a thing that it has fled from your memory potentially. Many of you not, but anyway. Um, but, but Peter is showing us this eternal thing. The word of the Lord remains forever. And he shows us one way that that pans out in our lives, that the, the word transforms us and makes us uh, makes every moment of our lives eternally significant. He, he, he comes in and it makes us loving towards each other. The comment's been made uh, by a good Christian author, I'm sure, and I just can't remember who it was, and I couldn't find them on the internet this week, uh, that Jesus takes ordinary things and he fills them up with an eternal significance. And that's what we see here, the ordinary acts of love between the people of the church, cooking someone a meal, right, when they're in need, having them in your house, learning each other's struggles and, and learning, taking the time and the effort to help each other bear them. These small things are an expression of the eternal truth of the gospel, of the word of God, which is changing our lives. When God's people understand the gospel truth of how greatly they have been loved, that Jesus would die to save them, and that he has risen to give them life. And when that truth flows into the rhythms of our lives, into the everyday stuff in our love for each other, then our every day becomes eternally important. Because we live as a display of the, the word of God, of the love that has been poured out on us in our love towards each other. The one thing that will last when all other things pass away is pouring into us and changing us. Something that's probably a bit obvious, but uh, very important to say here is that Christianity isn't meant to be lived out alone. You can't be a solitary Christian in the, in the way that the Bible sees Christianity. Now you get the odd Christian who will say, uh, I, I love Jesus, but church really isn't for me. Uh, now, I want to be super sensitive here. Some people actually say that because they've been hurt by people who were very un-Christ-like in their love or in their actions, uh, and, and there is real hurt there that needs to be worked through sometimes. But, but can you see how far the idea of solitary Christianity is from what Peter's describing here? He says, you've been born again through the gospel. You've been purified through the gospel. Your hope is in God now. It's no, nonsensical then to not love the other people who share that same salvation, that same hope, that same God. What about the ones that aren't saved? Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> no, I mean, okay, let me get to that now and, uh, and just, just, just put a break in this for a moment. The Bible very clearly tells us to love everyone. Jesus taught us to love our neighbours. He taught us to love our enemies. Um, and, you know, you can have enemies within the church, unfortunately, so that, that's, that's both sides of the coin. But... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's a sad reality, but sometimes people don't get along, and we're called to love. Um, but there is a special sense in which we're called to love each other in a way that displays the gospel as a community. Uh, you know, in, in, in John chapter 10, uh, I think we, we looked at this recently, I, I think, um, Jesus says, not John chapter 10, actually, it's 13 or 14, one of those two. It's in John. Uh, <laughs> Jesus says... Um, he gives them the new commandment, right, to love one another. Uh, and then he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, which is when you have love for one another. Uh, and, and that means that our love for one another is not just a way for us to, you know, get along well, but it's actually a picture to the world 
of what the love of Jesus is like. And of course we love the world around us. And of course we show love to them. And, and we do that by wanting them to come into the community and be a part of that as well. We love them regardless of whether they do or not. But yeah, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and figure out where I was, but, but that was a good question. No, it was great. Thanks, Anita. Uh, <laughs> if you've received so much love from God, that he has purified you, and if that same God is now your hope, you must love the ones that he loves. Do you see? Otherwise, in practice, you're denying the truth of the love that he's shown to you. It's that serious. Let's face it, we will struggle with this. I think that if you've been in churches for a while, you'd struggle, you know that you struggle with this. Maybe you're a honeymoon phase Christianity and, and you've yet to not get along with another Christian. It's coming. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's not just the people who've decided not to be involved in a church that struggle to love other Christians. They're just the ones who've kind of blocked off the possibility of them. But here's the challenge. And, and there are there Christians who you know that that great you or that you that you struggle to love, that you hold something against, perhaps. Even if even if you say you've forgiven them, but in practice, in practice you can't love them. Are there? That's a, I think I think I think a lot of us have got a nod to that, right? Now, maybe they've legitimately wronged you. That's a thing. Okay? This isn't just saying love the people who are you know, have been good to you, uh, or the ones that are maybe just a little bit grating, but beyond that, you don't have to. It's not what it's saying. Maybe they do just grate you. Maybe their personality gets on your nerves, gets you goat. But either way, that coffee machine is a curse. But I'm not called to love it because it's a coffee machine. But either way, because of the gospel, because Jesus died and rose, because God has shown you more love than you could ever imagine, because God has loved you in the face of you being worse to him than anyone will ever be to you. That's a fact. You know, your whole life was lived in opposition to God. And even as you have been saved, you still go on sinning, and he loves you. False. The fact that he did that because of the gospel of his goodness to us, greater than any wrong that anyone has ever done against us because of his great love not on the basis of what other people have done to you you're empowered to love i don't pretend that that's easy it takes hard work and is what we are called to as christians because we have been so greatly loved you know jesus says uh, to the pharisee son uh, when when the woman comes in and cleans his feet her hair um he says, you know, you didn't, even, you didn't even offer me something to wash my feet. Feet were dirty back then, by the way. That's a thing in ancient culture. Uh, and but, but she, since I come in, she hasn't stopped crying on my feet and wetting my hair with ointment and washing them with her hair. She loved much. Uh, sorry. He says, he who loves little has been forgiven little. And the flip side is, he who has been forgiven much loves much. We have all, if we have believed in Jesus, been forgiven much. Any person who has been saved has been forgiven much. And that's what Peter's calling us to here. But on the basis of how, how greatly we have been loved by our creator God. And really that leads into the central application. 
It might sound a bit funny. You might be like, we've already hit the central application. It was to love each other, right? But uh, it's not. The central command that Peter gives here is not love one another. You see, it's not enough for him to just say, you've been saved by the gospel, so love one another. Certainly that is how it looks to live a life of obedience to the truth of the gospel, but there is a deeper command here that needs to be obeyed if the command to love one another is to send, if we're to be able to live that out. Because as we've commented, it's hard. So, so read, read this with me from verse 1 of chapter 2. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter opens this section with this list of things to put away, to get rid of. Uh, malice, that's basically having ill will towards each other. Uh, uh, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And the fairly clear reason is that these are things that are the opposite of loving one another. These are the active opposition to love within the church, to the love he's just called us to. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that being malicious towards each other destroys community and brotherly love, right? And if you're hearing this and thinking of a Christian, like, this is an easy temptation to fall into. Don't take this as a judgment if this is you, but take it as a, as a, as a good reminder. If you're hearing this and you're thinking of a Christian brother or sister and you're thinking, wow, you know, this is really relevant for them. Uh, I hope they get the message that the gospel motivates love. Then let me gently suggest that maybe this is for you and your heart towards that brother or sister. But really that verse looks forward to the next one. Verse 1 of chapter 2 looks forward to verse 2 of chapter 2. These things to get rid of are building to the one thing that is to be sought after. Peter uses strong language here. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now what is this milk that he's on about? This, this is the central command of our passage, right? We better get this. <laughs> what, what is the milk? Uh, think back with me over, over what we've already seen. Verses one, uh, 22 to 25 of chapter 1, he's speaking again and again about the truth. That came up many, like five or six times in 22 through 25. About the truth of a word, and then finally, finally he does explain in verse 25 of chapter 1 what that word is. That, and we, as we saw, it's the gospel that was preached to them. The gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, he starts encouraging them, long for the pure spiritual milk. Want this one thing, burn for this one thing. And by that point, it seems really evident that he's still talking about the same thing, do you see? The milk he is talking about, the thing that we are to long for, is the word of the gospel, that it would come in and permeate every part of our lives. In fact, the word spiritual there, uh, if, if you're reading it, like Robin was, the, the spiritual milk, it's actually not the normal Greek word we get for spiritual. It's actually a word that can be, transla can be translated as spiritual. It can also be translated as reasonable. And the, the Greek word has the same root as the word in chapter 1, verse 23, for word. Peter is intentionally bringing us back to the word of the gospel, the word milk, if you will. Now stop there for a second. Does anyone here have kids? They don't have to be young still. It's okay. 
you know, or have you hung around with children? Yes, maybe, you know, but most of you have been to a service here, you've hung around with noisy children. I love my kids, love you all, love you Ellie, love you Charlie. Um, when a baby wants milk, there's just nothing else that will do, right? This, this is just a fact. Um, it's, it's why dad is often less popular. Uh, I'm not bitter, it's just a thing. <laughs> Babies aren't blasé when offered milk. In fact, in fact, you won't often see a baby who's being offered milk. Uh, when they want milk, they know they want milk. You know, they let you know loudly, angrily. <laughs> they demand milk. You know, if I'm, if I'm holding Charlie, he's... Crystal's around the room so I can get this wrong. Seven weeks old at the moment. Eight, seven, maybe eight tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> if I'm holding him and he wants milk, he'll be distressed purely by the fact that it is me that is holding him. He, he, he will get so upset uh, when they get a little bit bigger, it becomes a little bit more violent. Uh, they, they cry and they scream and they carry on as if to say, why? Why would you do this to me? Why would you deprive me of this one thing that I love? Why would you be such a monster? And <laughs> they, don't, they don't actually say those that many words. <laughs> Usually they'll just say like, mummy or milk or ilk or whatever they milk or... Um, but, but the point is, when Peter says, long for the milk like newborn babies, he means long for it. It's a powerful metaphor. It's not, it's not a, 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 a blasé desire for something. Milk is what grows babies and sustains them, so they long for it. They smell it. Yeah, they can. They're like wolves, but with milk. Milk milk is a baby's greatest joy. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, so they long for it. Milk is literally what keeps a baby alive and well, so they long for it. Often we act like the Bible tells us, be disciplined in desiring pure spiritual milk. Uh, be dis- disciplined in, in drinking it. Do you get that? I get that. So there's no shame in admitting that. Uh, those, there's those times when we sit down and, and well, maybe we're going to read the Bible or something and, and we want to prepare for a gospel conversation maybe or, or uh, one of those gospel things where we know we're going to be enriched by the gospel and, 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 and I'm just like, man, I just want to watch a movie right now. Or maybe it's a... It's a angsty BBC series for some of you, I don't know. But that was a, too much of an in-joke, sorry. Um, now, now it's good to have self-control in reading the Word and in, in enriching your life in the Gospel. Don't hear me saying it's not. But when it gets to the point where we act like we're kind of doing God a favour, you know, where, where we're talking up some points with the big man, by, by doing the thing that will build us up for our final salvation in great joy, that, that doesn't make sense when you say it out loud, does it? And that's not what we have here. Peter says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, you will never ever see a newborn baby drinking milk like it is their duty. It's just not a thing. They drink it like it's their joy. And that's what Peter has in mind as we come to receiving more of Christ in the gospel. We need to recognise that this is our milk. This is worthy of all desire and urgency. This is my life. 
I have tasted that the Lord is good, and like babies long for the milk, or they become weak and die, I need the gospel. I need it poured into my life as it prepares me for him, for his return. Now, I don't know about you, but, but this idea of desiring the gospel can seem a bit <coughs> conceptual, maybe is the word, um, a bit distant, you know what I mean? A bit hard to put legs on. What does it mean to desire the gospel? What does that look like? Uh, the gospel truth is a, is a, is a truth. It's, it's easy to say desire heaven, right? Who wouldn't desire heaven? It's easy to say desire Jesus. That, that, why wouldn't you? But long for the gospel. Well, the trick is in understanding that the gospel is the milk that grows us up towards something, toward our salvation. And I think this is the same salvation that we saw way back in verse 5 of chapter 1, the final salvation which will be revealed at the last time. This isn't our salvation in the sense of forgiveness, uh, but in the sense of deliverance from the sinful world and into the presence of God. So the actual news of the gospel isn't to be desired for the sake of the news of the gospel. Understand? The gospel is to be desired like milk because it, as milk nurtures the baby and prepares them to be a grown-up. So the gospel truth grows us as we see it more fully, preparing us for our final salvation. And the fact that this is final salvation that it prepares us for means that this isn't like the other uses of milk in the New Testament. You know, over in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, it, milk is contrasted with solid food and, and Paul's rebuking them for, for still needing the milk. That's not what's happening here. The maturity that this milk prepares us for is only fully realised after this life when Jesus returns. So this is a lifelong drinking from the gospel. And this makes so much sense, because think back to uh, chapter 1, verse 21. The result of the gospel is that it puts our faith and our hope in God. It makes us trust in God and long for him. Really, that summarizes most of chapter 1, right? Our hope has been placed in Jesus in God, and in the time when he will return. And then, and then look at that quote again, going back to it again in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It references that quote in particular. From all of Scripture, he picks that one because he wants these Christians to remember what the word is that it's talking about. Let me, let me read you a little bit of context around that quote. It's from the book of Isaiah. Uh, directly following it, uh, there's these other verses uh, which would have come to mind for these Christians as they, as they read this letter. So, so in Isaiah, it's in chapter 40, the, uh, we get up to, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Go on, uh, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. That word good news there is the same one that we get in, in verse 25. Uh, o Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what's the good news? Behold your God. And that is right at the start of a prophecy that explicitly looks forward to the coming of Jesus. Right? So do you get what's happening here? The good news is the good news of our God. It's the good news about him, of who he is, and of what he has done. 
What this is saying is desire the gospel because it gives you more of God. As you see it more clearly, you know him more clearly. That's why he finishes the sentence with, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. The gospel is not just for your initial salvation. Uh, This is a trap we can fall into as Christians. It's for your ongoing transformation. And as Peter says here, it prepares you for a final salvation at the return of Jesus. The gospel matures you. It readies you for the time when he will come back and when you will receive your greatest desire. You will be with him. And the Bible teaches quite plainly that every other blessing that that can possibly exist will come with that and will seem, frankly, secondary in comparison to being with God. We've already already read in Revelation 21 in this series at one point, but we'll say it again. No more mourning, crying, or pain. Right? Sounds good, doesn't it? And in that passage, it is just this side effect to God who dwells with his people. As we grow in understanding and grasping the gospel and seeing it applied in our lives, we are growing in the truth of who our God is. It is the truth of what He has done for us, and it is the truth of who. Uh, uh, sorry, is the truth that transforms our lives as we understand it more and more, as we see it more and more, and trust more and more in the work of our God to save us both in the past. Uh, when he saved us from the penalty of sin and in the present, when he is ongoingly transforming us from the power of sin, transforming us to be like Jesus. And remember, the first first way that Peter envisages that working out, right, in our lives, what is the life that desires the gospel look like, is that we grow under the gospel as, as so we grow in love for one another. So how do we fulfil this longing? Turn there again to that question. First, and this may seem overly simplistic, but we're going to go there. Reading the Bible is actually a beautiful blessing of a thing. We can struggle with it sometimes, but it is milk to the Christian. Although the word that Peter's talking about in this passage is the word of the gospel message, the Bible is one place that we should certainly go to to read and to grow in the word of the gospel. You know, Jesus, when he met those guys on the road to Emmaus, he says, he, he points them out to all of the ways that the Lord and the prophets spoke about him. What that means is the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. When we read the Bible, we have to be aware of that, that it's not a rule book or a collection of just uh, antiquated stories. The Bible is front to back, soaked in the good news of who our God is and of what he has done. So Christians, this is absolutely an encouragement for us to read our Bibles, right? to hungrily go to Scripture so that we might mature by seeing the truth about our God more clearly, seeing the truth of what he has done more clearly and seeing more clearly how it is to change our lives. But second, we need to personally be reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel every day. This is a good practice to be in as a Christian. Don't make it a law, but make it a joy. Remind yourself, my God is the God who came down as a man, defeated my sin and my death and my brokenness and rebellion against him by his death on the cross. And he has risen and he reigns over all. His spirit dwells in me. And and so my faith and my hope are in God. So today I will live like it.
Use that as your mirror thing. It doesn't have to be those exact words. It was much too long for you to memorize them. But uh, third, and, and like this is the one that I want to stress, because uh, I think this is the one that we most easily fail to step into as Christians. Uh, and it's, it's an obvious implication of this passage, right? We need to remember that Paul's not writing to individuals here. He's not writing to one Christian and saying, long for the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. He's writing to a community. In fact, he's writing to a community of communities. Uh, uh, in this whole region. We get that from verse 2 of chapter 1, like we said. So when he says, long for the gospel, we should understand that as something to be done together. We bring the truth of the gospel into each other's lives. When we see each other walking in ways that disobey the truth of the gospel, when we live in, see each other living in contrary ways, we graciously bring each other back to the cross, back, back to the person and the work of our God, so as to bring each other back into line with the gospel truth and with our joy. Let me just remind you, as a side note, if, you, uh, if you're not living in any form of community with, with other Christians except for a Sunday service, this can't happen. Now, in, in a few months, we are going to start, uh, get to a point as a church where we are ready. I, I would have liked to have done this from day dot, actually. I see it as so essential to the church, but we just, we're not in a place where we could. Um, but we're going to be starting these things that we're going to call gospel communities. Um, they're going to be weekly gatherings in the home of each other, uh, with other Christians. And if you see this as your home church, when that happens, I'd encourage you to see that as just an essential part of what it is to be a part of this church. Not as the optional extra. Huh? In those, we're going to seek to make relationships that will keep each other accountable to the gospel truth. It's going to be an explicit purpose of our time together there. And that doesn't mean that that's, that's it done and dusted, right? This is our lives together. We are to bring the gospel in force into each other's lives, in love into each other's lives as well. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, Paul says, uh, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is to head into Christ. He's talking to every single Christian there. And the truth that he's talking about is the truth of the gospel. Because in verse 21 of that passage, he says, the truth is the truth that's in Jesus. So we are to be a people who grow to be like Jesus by speaking his truth into each other's lives. And I just wanted to close today by saying there is a note of warning in this passage as well. When Peter writes, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, he's obviously expecting that the Christians reading this uh, have tasted and do desire God and Jesus and, and, and hope in him. But still, it has to be said, maybe you haven't tasted let us never assume that everyone in the room has tasted that the Lord is good, even if everyone in the room has been in churches their entire life. And you need to know that God has paid for your sin. There is a way to taste of him tonight and know that he is good and to bring transformation into your life to be restored to right relationship with your creator and to change the relationships in your life through that. You know, maybe, maybe you are a person who has just not spent loads of time in church. I don't think we've got many people who haven't spent much time in church. But, um, 
Maybe you're a person who has spent all of your life sitting in the seats of the church. Not like every day. I've done that. But, uh, <laughs> maybe you've been there for years, but you're hearing this and realising you don't desire to grow up toward Jesus. You don't want him in this way. And, and, and you don't want to be growing in readiness for his return. You, you bought Jesus for something else, you know? It's not how this faith works. And I'm not talking about single days in our walk. I don't want to shake everyone's faith and go, oh, there are moments when I don't love Jesus quite so much. Uh, there are moments when we struggle. There are seasons where we struggle in our lives to desire the Lord. Uh, but, but if you just don't desire to be with him at all, if that's just not a thing, then it's worth asking, have you tasted that he is good? <coughs> our faith isn't, a, isn't purely a spiritual discipline. It's a pursuit of, of what is our joy. Have you tasted that he's good? He is the point of the gospel. All that he is and has done. And he is the hope that at the end of the gospel is at the end of the gospel road. If you don't have that hope, and so you don't want to grow in him, and as, the, as a result, you don't want to grow in love toward the Christians around you, then consider if you've really believed the gospel truth. Can consider if you have actually accepted the gospel. And if you're hearing that and realising that you haven't accepted the gospel, I have good news that can change today. You can believe and be saved. Today you can accept good news. The good news that Jesus died for your sin and restores your relationship with God and he is the greatest joy that there is. I'm going to have a chat to me afterwards if that's you. But for the rest of us, I want to encourage us. That's not the final moment of experiencing the gospel for us. That's just the beginning. And so we want to grow in this truth of the gospel day by day. And I want to encourage us to lovingly pour it into each other's lives day by day. And with that, I ask you if you want to pray with me. Because I need God's help with that. I don't know about you. I do know about you, actually. Jesus, God... You have been so good to us. Jesus, you died. You uh, paid the price for our sin. You have caused us to be born again. And so our hope and our faith is in God if we have believed in you. So we pray for anyone who hasn't, that you would bring them to faith in you. And Lord, even if that's not tonight, we ask that this would be a church where people are coming to faith in you. And we ask that it would be a church where people are growing in faith in you as well. Let us be a people who love your gospel, long for it to pour into our lives in, in ever-increasing ways, to more and more see how it applies to our, our everything, our walk to work, our interaction with our family, our, our, our work, our shopping, our driving, the way we speak to people, the way we spend our time, the way we use our money, our everything, Lord, change us by your gospel. Let us be people who long to be changed by your gospel. And as we're changed, Lord, lead us to be a community that shows the truth of the gospel in love for one another. In glorious, otherworldly love that is only possible through the love that you've shown to us. We pray these things in the name of our good Saviour Jesus. Amen.